to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, in the waning days of this election, what is the strategy for the party leaders moving forward? Also, healthcare workers are the backbone of Canada's healthcare system, but after 18 months and four waves, they're tired, and the healthcare shortages and burnout continue. What is needed from the federal government to address these issues? We're going to talk with one of the experts about that. And Canadians with disabilities say they're missing from all the election discussions. David Lepofsky, who is the chair of the Accessibility for Ontarians with Disabilities Act Alliance, will join us to discuss those concerns. It's all coming up at the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Let's uh, start off on the campaign trail. Uh, in the face of protests at hospitals right across the country, and we talked about that extensively on the program yesterday, Liberal leader Justin Trudeau made an announcement yesterday aimed at protecting the people inside those hospitals. Global's Abigail Beeman is traveling with the Liberal campaign, and this is her report. Liberal leader Justin Trudeau says a re-elected Liberal government will make it illegal to block access to health care sites everywhere from hospitals to vaccine centres to abortion clinics. It is not okay that across the country, hospitals are having to put up barricades today to manage the mobs coming their way. It's not okay any day to know that a nurse going into a late shift, crossing a parking lot, might be afraid that there could be someone there to spit on her or shout obscenities at her. While there is, of course, already legislation against uttering threats or assaulting people, Trudeau says it's necessary to add something to protect health care workers specifically, as exists for some other professions currently. Trudeau spent Monday in B.C.'s Lower Mainland a tight three-way race in some cases between Liberals, Conservatives and NDP. Abigail Beeman, Global News, Richmond, B.C. So where are we now with just a few days left to go as uh, the numbers well, start to get a little bit tighter? Uh, pleased to welcome back to the program Muhammad Ali, who is a senior consultant with Crestview Strategies. Uh, Muhammad, great to have you back on the program. Hope you're doing well these days. I am. Thanks for having me. Good. Let's uh, talk a little bit about uh, your read on what you're seeing right now. What well, The strategy for, for, let's talk about the three main political parties, first of all, the, the Liberals, Conservatives, and, and the NDP. Uh, in the last days here, the waning days of this, is, is the number one strategy at this point not to screw anything up? In other words, uh, you don't want to coast to the finish line here. Uh, you want to finish strongly, I understand that. But at the same time, a gap here could be fatal, I would think. Yeah, you know, a couple of things. Yes, you're right that you need to make sure you don't have any missteps. Uh, particularly just before the weekend, usually you know the media cycle will will, will carry things, and so you want to avoid that before for the before the weekend. And most voters, by the time the weekend hits, have more or less uh, determined with who they want to vote for. Um, and there was a good recent poll that came out that 75% of of uh, decided voters are firm with their decision of who they're going to vote for. So it's important for them to that small uh, small number of Canadians are still undecided that you continue your message, uh, keep the same tone. You know, if you don't, you don't want to all of a sudden change up the, your, your, your policies or plans or too much all of a sudden last minute because you might risk uh, damaging the original strategy that may have been working this entire time. And I would think that the, the, the way they're going to go, and more importantly, maybe where they're going to go at this stage is going to uh, indicate, I guess, to us as, as exactly where they see their strong suits and, and, and you know, where, well, you know, we, we, I, for instance, I'm not going to, I would anticipate seeing Mr. Trudeau spending a whole lot of time in Alberta and Saskatchewan over the next couple of days. Uh, British Columbia, sure. Ontario and Quebec, I would think most assuredly. Same thing with Aaron O'Toole. Yeah, so interesting you make the, the comment about Alberta because there is actually an opportunity for the Liberals to pick up a, a couple of seats in Alberta and wasn't one in Edmonton and one in Calgary. So it'll be interesting to see if he does step there, uh, depending on what their internal poll numbers are, are showing. And, and I think there's a little bit of softening of conservative votes out there. So uh, that it could be uh, interesting to see as well as Aaron O'Toole makes a, a swing through Alberta uh, on his way back to Ontario or, or towards B.C. You know, you know, Trudeau's right now in doing a series of stops in B.C., I think he'll probably end up in, in Ontario, Quebec, to really drive home his uh, his message. But uh, they're, you know, for each of the leaders, they're also going to be looking at uh, where do they need to just shore up a little bit of support? Where do they need to be visible on a certain issue? Uh, you know, Canadians are going to be a lot more hyper-focused this week. There's the interviews coming out from different outlets. Uh, you know, you'll probably see some of the, uh, the newspapers come out with the editorial like recommendations of who are, are endorsements who they're going to vote for. Uh, so there were a lot of things that uh, they'll want to latch on to, talk about, uh, pump out on social media and, and, and really hope for uh, a successful vote on, on the 20th. 
I want to get back to Alberta. That's an interesting angle that you that you talked about here because we had heard that that uh, in Calgary and Edmonton. I mean, even two seats for the Liberals in Alberta would be a, a big win for them it's, it's, uh, since they got wiped out pretty much uh, in the last election. Uh, but it does indicate uh, it, what you and I have been talking about in the past. Uh, we like to think that maybe provincial politics and federal politics uh, don't necessarily impact uh, on each other, but they certainly do in the minds of the voters, don't you? I mean, Jason Kenney is not the most popular guy in Alberta these days because of what's going on with uh, with COVID, uh, and and they may just you know th- take it out on on the federal candidates in situations like that because you know obviously Jason Kenney's not running for re-election not yet anyway. Yeah, you know, uh, provincial premiers have their different impacts on on, um, on federal elections. Uh, I think Jason Kenney and the brain of the Conservatives uh, has not helped Aaron O'Toole out there, and Jason Kenney was one of the biggest endorsers of Aaron O'Toole during his leadership bid. So. Uh, Aaron O'Toole not to have been able to use Jason Kenney's entire time, uh, one who also has a big network amongst the ethnic minority communities across the country, uh, has been, I think, a bit of a uh, a bit of a you know a bit of a struggle for Aaron O'Toole there. But you know, and I think that's where uh, the Liberals have found some openings. Uh, you know, some of their internal polling may be showing that um, you know spots in Calgary and in Edmonton, which were Liberal in 2015, but then flipped Conservative again. You know, they, they can flip that back because there's a lot of resentment towards how the conservative premier of Alberta uh, dealt with COVID, continues to deal with COVID. As we're seeing like the, the Alberta's leaving the country once again and COVID cases, Western Canada in general. So I think there's a lot of resentment towards it. And I think they, there is a lot of uh, current positive historical view of the liberals and what the pandemic response was like, particularly in the communities that, struggled the most and a continuous struggle the most as victims of COVID you know, because they may be essential workers, lower income, racialized and such. Uh, those are the places where the Liberals are seeing a bump in support in Alberta. Let's talk a little bit about the NDP if we could. Uh, you know, we've looked at a number of different polls over the last couple of weeks that uh, say the Canadians kind of like Jagmeet Singh. I think he's a nice guy. Uh, not necessarily their first choice for prime minister. As a matter of fact, he's still languishing in third. But his popularity, once again, has not really translated into support for the NDP. Pretty much through this whole campaign, Mohammed, they, they've hovered around 20 percent, 21 to 19, something like that. The, the, there's no, been no growth there. Are you surprised by that? Not entirely surprised. Uh, the, the NDP have recovered from their 2019, uh, really like their drop down to fourth place. So I think that his popularity has helped bring it up a bit. But part of his popularity comes down to if you don't believe he's going to be prime minister, so you may, you're having a different interpretation of him. So you're saying he might be a good partner for in, in, a, in a minority government situation. He will be a good person to just speak on certain issues uh, eloquently or passionately, whatever you may feel as. And so you're going to assess them differently. Whereas for Trudeau and O'Toole, uh, you know, liberal and conservative, you're assessing them like, hey, can this person govern the country? And so you become a little bit more, I would say, critical, much more thoughtful in how to assess that leader. And I think that's why you're seeing this huge discrepancy between Jagmeet and, um, and, the, and the other two leading party leaders. Uh, but also there's the, the combination of, you know, Jagmeet is very popular amongst the young people. Uh, that's not a group that is voting in high numbers. They're probably going to vote similar to 2019 numbers around the 50 to 60 percent range. Uh, so are they going to translate to votes? Are they going to translate to people who are like, yeah, I'm actively going to vote? I'm not seeing that. And also, it's, he hasn't been very competitive. Uh, basically, uh, I was thinking about it today, east of the Highway 400. Uh, you know, he's not, he's not really resonating competitive uh, in most of the GTA. Uh, he's not competitive in Ottawa, eastern Ontario, or Quebec, or Atlantic Canada. That's a huge chunk of people and a huge chunk of, pop, uh, of ge- geography to not be competitive. And, and right now, he's really just focused on B.C., maybe a bit of Alberta, as a place where he can pick up his, pick up seats. It's, it's interesting to see some of those numbers. Uh, the, the Nanos polling, Nick Nanos' uh, group that uh, does their daily polling, uh, has indicated that, that there's been actually a loss of support for Singh. And that coincidentally, it seemed to be right after the English language debate. I don't know if there's any faux pas there necessarily, but maybe leaders, uh, as, as you know, we talked about their performance in that particular debate, and uh, people were watching clearly. You got to look at some of the numbers of, of, uh, of the viewership and the listenership on that debate. And uh, I guess they were just going through that same filter that you were just talking about, Mohammed. 
is it, well, can this individual there be the leader of this country? And I guess now it seems as if Canadians have pretty much narrowed it down to two choices. One of two choices, anyway. Yeah, and you know, it didn't help the, the NDP by releasing their cost of platform halfway through advanced polling weekend, uh, where people were deciding, hey, like I think this this platform makes most sense to me. Here's the details, et cetera. Let me vote this way. You know, he didn't have that answer in the debate, which people saw, and, and that was the last reference point that people had before deciding how they're going to cast their ballot in advanced voting, which is becoming more and more popular every election. Uh, you've you've lost out on that on that opportunity, and you know you're not getting the the big endorsements either. You know the climate change piece. The, uh, you know experts were, were saying like we're like this is you have some good stuff here, but you don't have any substance. Uh, how are you going to deliver any of this? Even the the parliamentary budget officer when on the cost of platform said, look, I have doubts on your ability to raise his revenue. You're you know great for you to claim it, but it may not happen. And Jigmeet also acknowledges so like. He's not even fully uh, into his platform. So if you don't fully believe and drive your platform, how can a voter believe in you, right? So I think that's where he's having that struggle. And people are also seeing, well, if if I'm getting what I wanted out of the liberals and there's a threat of a conservative being elected in my riding, I should maybe start considering voting strategically. Because the, the, the NDP have largely been stagnant for about two weeks in terms of their increase in vote support. You know, it really shot up uh, from when the election started for the first two weeks, and then it kind of plateaued. And it's plateaued largely nationally. You know, it, it's improved in BC and, and Alberta. But um, you know, if you're progressive in in Atlanta, Canada, or in Quebec, or in Eastern Ontario, uh, you don't see a very viable NDP. So you're going to vote strategically, or you know how. Uh, ensure that your views and your values are reflected in the candidate you elect. Looking at some of the numbers here, the advanced polling, and, and I know that's not always a, a steady barometer, but the, the numbers that we've seen so far, Mohammed, have indicated an increase uh, in advanced polling, even over the 2019 election. Uh, can we read something into that? Does that in- indicate that maybe people are motivated to get out and vote during this election, that these issues do matter to them? You know, I think, uh, as I was mentioning, that there's been a trend uh, of people moving more and more towards advanced. Well, like traditionally, uh, or historically, I should say, uh, if, if you saw a huge swing in advanced uh, voting, uh, that usually is a sign that people want change. But uh, that's not really the case this time, because even in 2019, there was a, a great, uh, significant number of people who voted coming up, came out voting. Uh, the Liberals held on, obviously, in the minority situation. The numbers are pretty competitive and close, you know, a little bit more, but close to what the 2019 numbers are. So I'm not seeing that this may be a motivation to change government. They're motivated to, I think, vote early, and a lot of campaigns are pushing that because Election Day, there's going to be less polling locations. And so a number of candidates across the country, but also the parties, have really pushed, like, vote early because there's a risk that Election Day, you'll have to wait even longer uh, to, to cast your ballot. And I think that's, you know, a concern that, you know, if there's a three hour wait, are people going to wait three hours to vote? Uh, you know, that's, that's a decision each individual is going to make. So I think you're seeing a bit of a, let me get my vote out of the way quickly. Uh, don't want to deal with election day chaos. Um, you know, I generally know how I'm going to vote. Like I mentioned, 75% of Canadians know which way they're going to vote. Um, so a lot of them are casting the ballots quickly and early. Let's uh, very quickly talk about Maxime Bernier. Uh, the surprise that in many people's eyes is the fact that they're sitting at about 6% right now. And I know he's not going to be the prime minister. Uh, his party may not even win any seats in this election. Uh, but are they going to be a factor? I mean, you know, the people that have obviously thrown their support behind Mr. Bernier and uh, the People's Party right now, are, are those uh, what votes that would have been conservative otherwise, or are they drawing from, from all three parties? I think they're driving from different parties, to be honest, uh, because the, the, the PPC supporters, it seems to be more of like a, a movement kind of oriented message of, hey, anti-lockdown, anti-vaccine, anti-vaccine mandates, uh, you know, government is conspiracy theory on COVID and COVID is not real, like you're seeing right now with the hospital protests mm-hmm. that are going on. Uh, these are people who are, are angry, but also don't want to, to abide by some of these rules and what, what's happened in COVID. And you're seeing uh, a bleed from the Green Party vote supporters. You're seeing a bit from the NDP, from a bit from the Liberals, a bit from Conservatives, I think, uh, throughout. But I think there's still also a, a bit of a brand because of how the PPC reform was as an alternative Conservative vote. And so you're seeing, I think, the fringe elements of the Conservative Party kind of also support P- 
PPC saying that, hey, like this is another still a viable party for us to park our votes. Some of the disenfranchised Green Party voters are apparently the uh, largest chunk of who have swung on a percentage basis to the PPC. Uh, even when I was at the door, I was at the door uh, door knocking the other the other day, and someone was like, "Well, I'm debating between uh, Maxine Bernie and Jagmeet Singh." Who would have thought? Yeah. Uh, so I, I think there's there they've tapped into different places because uh, and uh, to tap into the anger that's going on right now uh, around lockdowns, around vaccine mandates and vaccine requirements, and even the vaccine there. Um, I think they're trying to mobilize, and I don't. I don't think we all have a full picture of what really was the impact because there are a lot of people who may not be reflected in the polling data of what the PP, their attention to both PPC. Uh, I am hearing it more and more in, in my non-political uh, network, and and so it's a, it's an interesting kind of phenomenon that's happening. And I think we'll see if if this polls conservative votes, particularly ones that they could win uh, at the expense of liberals. Uh, or the NDP. Uh, there's also like the Maverick Party, which is a separatist party mm-hmm. in Alberta. You know, are they going to be pulling more votes as well? So it would be interesting to see how the numbers lay out after, but it's, it's kind of tough to really um, determine what is the full impact and who is going to impact the most. Well, I guess the uh, the one prediction that we can embrace right now is it's going to be a long night on election night <laughs> to try to sort through be. all this. <laughs> Mohammed, as always, thanks so much for this. I really appreciate your time today. Thanks for having me. Take care. Mohamed Ali, Senior Consultant with Crestview Strategies, uh, with his read on what's going on in the waning days of this federal election. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. As we've been talking about over the last couple of days, physicians, especially here at Hamilton Health Sciences, say they are frustrated that an increase in hospitalizations among unvaccinated I say that again, among unvaccinated, is forcing them to cancel surgeries. Cardiologist and ICU physician Dr. Craig Ainsworth says that while there are fewer overall COVID-19 patients being admitted to hospital during this wave, almost all of them are unvaccinated. And because of the lack of available staff, that's leading to more surgeries being canceled on a daily basis. Generally, we have four to six cardiac surgical um, cases booked every day, and all cardiac surgery cases got canceled on on Friday because of lack of ICU resources. I, I'll put this in context, I've, the, the, what Dr. Ainsworth is saying here, and this is specific to the Hamilton situation here. Uh, during the fourth wave of the pandemic, 90% of COVID patients admitted to Hamilton General have been unvaccinated. 90%. 99% in ICU, unvaccinated. So as a result, as Dr. Ainsworth has mentioned, uh, they have canceled surgeries, cardiac surgeries for today. It's ridiculous what's going on here, and it doesn't have to happen that way because people are unvaccinated. And the stress that's causing among hospital staff is, is incredible. There's, a, I think, a very interesting and, and very cogent op-ed piece that was in the Toronto Sun today uh, that outlines exactly what's going on, and, and it's a, a plea for uh, all of the candidates in this federal election uh, to understand the issues that are going on in our hospitals and with the delivery of health care. One of the co-authors of that uh, op-ed piece is Dr. Catherine Smart. Dr. Smart is the president of the Canadian Medical Association and uh, joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Uh, doctor, a pleasure to have you on the program. Thanks so much for the time today. Thanks for having me. Very timely in light of what's happened over the last three or four days. I, I guess maybe right off the top of our conversation, let me ask you, I mean, did you ever in your wildest dreams imagine that healthcare workers would go from being our heroes and those that are saving lives to be the the object of, of verbal and physical abuse and being spat upon? No, I, I certainly didn't, and I don't think any of us in healthcare anticipated that at all. Um, but I think what it speaks to is the power of what I'm calling a parallel pandemic of misinformation and how people are utilizing misinformation to manipulate people and unfortunately bring out the worst and and some of these folks we're seeing that are accosting people at hospitals. Well, and therein lies the problem, of course, that misinformation and uh, and the fact that the healthcare workers are being the targets of this, I just find unconscionable. Uh, the piece that you wrote, uh, along with uh, Tim Guest, who's the president of the Canadian Nurse Association, uh, I think outlines some of the concerns. And I, 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 the first takeaway I get from uh, from reading the op-ed piece, Doctor, is like so many other things that we've talked about over the last 18 months, uh, COVID-19 didn't just create these problems. It exposed already pro- problems that already existed. Absolutely. You know, I think for anyone who is in the system, uh, even predating COVID, we knew we were in for trouble. You know, we've had underfunding of healthcare for so long now in this country. And, and as funding rates have declined, 
that's against a backdrop of an aging demographic of Canadians who are requiring more health care. So there's a big mismatch there. Um, and that underfunding has really left us with a, a system that was kind of barely meeting Canadians' needs to begin with and really had, you know, unacceptable wait times for many aspects of care. And now, of course, that's just been made worse by the pandemic, which has utilized even more healthcare resources uh, to deal with people with COVID and, and taking them away from other parts of the system. So this was a, a tragedy waiting to happen, wasn't it? I mean, if it wasn't COVID, it could have been something else. But uh, because of the understaffing, because of the stress that uh, the hospital staff and first-line workers are under right now, uh, this this was bound to happen, and it sadly has occurred like this. Why hasn't there been more action on this? I mean, everybody who's ever run for office in the last 18 months, and we've had a few elections now, Doctor, uh, have, have you know, heaped praise upon, and, and justifiably so, heaped praise upon frontline workers. But are they listening to them? Well, I think that's the real challenge. You know, what we see every election is some talk about health care. But then what we don't see is the action following the election to actually make the commitments and follow through on these promises to create the change. And that's, I think, what's so frustrating. And, and that's why in this election, we're really calling on political leaders to go beyond just performative talk and really commit the dollars to real planning and funding to get our healthcare system back where it needs to be. You know, I think the Canadian healthcare system has been a source of pride for so many Canadians and, and parts of it do work well, but it hasn't the funding for it hasn't kept up um, and, and it's no longer really meeting the needs of Canadians and we need commitment to get it back to where it needs to be so it can remain a source of pride for Canadians and remain a place that or become a place where healthcare workers can actually thrive in the work that they're doing. How are they handling this? I mean, we've had so many stories about long-term care facilities uh, and, and the this, this tragic circumstances that are going on there. They're underpaid, they're overworked, etc., uh, to the point where some of the, uh, the workers in those facilities, as we know, have resigned and simply said, we can't do this anymore. Uh, how are the frontline workers in, in primary care on hospitals dealing with this? Is The stress levels, I know, are enormous. I've talked to a number of people in the Hamilton area that, that are feeling the, the, the heat right now because of what's gone on over the 18 months. Uh, but, but are they coping with it, or are, are some of them walking away? What is happening? Well, I think we're seeing, you know, a variety of things happening across the country. I think, you know, people are doing their best absolutely to cope with the situation. I mean, there's no question that these are all incredibly dedicated professionals who are doing what they can to get care to Canadians. But we are seeing some people burning out and leaving the system, and that's happening across the country. And, and that's really terrifying. You know, a lot of, of time and training and, and years of effort go into creating a healthcare professional it's not something that's easily replicated and every time we lose someone from a system from the system you know that's a resource that needs to be replaced and that's a huge loss and and we've seen that happen in so many other facets as well and and, and as you point out in the piece i mean it may sound very elementary but it's 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 maybe the main driver and the main message here uh without healthcare workers we don't have healthcare in this country i mean this is what it comes down to uh this is a a, a very very valuable resource to have these talented trained dedicated people and if the numbers start to decline that's going to have a, a serious impact on the delivery of health care oh no question about that and and i think that's such an important thing for people to understand. And, and I agree with you on the surface, it sounds simple. But, you know, even earlier in this pandemic, there was talks of, you know, we need more ventilators, procuring all this equipment, more beds, but not enough talk about who are the people that are actually going to then use all that equipment and keep people going. I mean, to look after a critically ill patient, yes, we need the equipment, but more importantly, we need the human health resources with the expertise to operate that equipment and use it in the way to sustain that person's life. And, and that's where we're really struggling in this country is having, you know, a data-driven human health care resource plan, actual investment in training enough healthcare professionals, and then the investments in the system to actually create environments where, where folks can thrive. And, and I think that's what's so frustrating for all of us at this point. But there's a disconnect there. It all reminds me, and it came back to me as I was reading your piece today, Doctor. Uh, years ago, I, I sat on the District Health Council here in, in the Hamilton area, uh, which is supposed to be a liaison between the, the Ministry of Health, etc. Anyway, long story short, they made an announcement back in those days that Hamilton was going to get an MRI machine, and the, the government was all happy about that, and, you know, big announcement, etc. And, and one of us around the table said, oh, well, 
who's going to run it? Where's the where's the the funding for staffing this? Oh, well, that's not part of this. You just get the machine. Well, that, it's that, that leaves a huge huge hole for the hospital now. I mean, what are they going to do with this? I mean, somebody has to be trained on this. Somebody has to work this machine. Uh, and if they're not allowing the funding for that, I mean, you don't want the thing to sit there not being used. But they don't seem to understand that there's a, a much broader picture that has to be uh, focused on here before we understand exactly what we talk about delivery of healthcare. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, that's a classic example of, you know, the ribbon cutting moment, like, oh, look what we bought, EAF. But like you said, you know, what about how that's actually going to be utilized and deployed and the supports around that and the funding that's needed to actually make that piece of equipment useful for the community? And and that's the trouble that we see so often is that lack of connecting all the dots that need to be brought together to really deliver the health care. Let's talk a little bit about the politics of this, because it's going to play into this whether we like it or not. And and, and we know this is a bit of a cheer for every time we talk about health care and delivery of health care and funding for health care. Uh, we know that way back when, uh, when when our Medicare system started in, in Canada in the mid-1960s, uh, it was a 50-50 partnership between the levels of government. It's not anymore. Uh, the federal government pays significantly less uh, than they did back in those days uh, on a percentage basis. Uh, but every time we have this discussion, Doctor, as you well know, uh, it becomes a battle between the provinces and, and, the, and the feds to say, look, at, you know, just give us the money and let us deliver the health care any way we want. And the feds are saying, well, wait a second, if we're going to fund this more, you're going to have to let us have some say in this. And you're, the healthcare professionals, yourself and the frontline workers that we're talking about, uh, they're in this tug of war. They're the ones in the middle. No, absolutely. And you've touched on many things. Like, as you said, you know, the Canada Health Transfer has declined over the years as a percentage of overall funding. And again, you know, this is against a backdrop of an aging demographic, Canadians needing more health care, which has been problematic. Uh, we're not seeing, you know, that health care transfer come back up to levels that it used to be and increase over time. So that's really challenging. But it is also challenging when we have a system where there are no clear standards, expectations, or data-driven decision-making. Um, and we're talking about billions of dollars, but exactly where is it going and what are the outcomes we're trying to achieve? So we do feel there needs to be more federal leadership. You know, part of the Canada Health Act is that Canadians should be able to have reasonably similar health care across the country. And, you know, right now in this fourth wave of the pandemic, I think what's clear is we're seeing what happens when provinces go their own direction. We have some places that are doing okay and, and other places that are absolutely in a crisis. And, and I think there is a role for the federal government to make sure that basic standards are adhered to um, and that Canadians are getting value for their investments. Problem is, you've got, and I spend a little bit of time in local government anyway. But in all the years I've been doing this business, the talk radio business, I've talked to health ministers in both federal and provincial, uh, and too many of them act like bean counters instead of those who are supposed to be delivering health care. You know, because they'll look at a budget and they say, "Okay, we're going to only increase your budget by one percent, or, or even worse, reduce it by one and a half or two percent." They have no idea what those reductions mean. It's just a number to them. Uh, and you know, walk the halls of some of these facilities and understand what that cut or that lack of, of increase would actually mean to the healthcare delivery. No, absolutely, and I, I think that's why you know what we've learned over time is often the best models of healthcare administration are where you have dyads of people with administrative expertise paired with physicians who have that frontline perspective of what it takes to deliver health care because often that's the voice that can be missing in government is that experience of what does this really mean when the rubber hits the road and, and I think that's why it's so important um, that physicians and nurses and other healthcare professionals are included in, in government decision making because we actually have that frontline knowledge of, of what it takes and what our system needs to improve. Are you disappointed that as we uh, get into the waning days of this election campaign, Doctor, uh, that health care has not been uh, given, the, the I think, the attention that it's due? I mean, they've talked about the pandemic, certainly, and they've talked about the recovery, and they've talked about the great work that frontline health care workers have done, but they've not talked about the system itself and that maybe it's time to look at the system and maybe this pandemic has shone some light on some things that need to be addressed. I don't hear that conversation from any of the leaders at this point. I, I agree, and it's really concerning for us that that's not happening. You know, we did a poll this week that showed us that 9 out of 10 Canadians feel the health care system is the most important issue facing our federal government. And I agree with you, we're just not hearing any depth of conversation there about what are they actually going to do 
to improve this system, and, and it's a system that every Canadian relies on. Um, so absolutely, I'd like to see the federal leaders more engaged in this conversation um, and really offering Canadians some real solutions in terms of how we move our healthcare system forward and to where it needs to be. I mean, it's wonderful, and your point's well taken. I mean, we are an aging population. We're living a lot longer. You know, I mean, you know, pension plans used to, you know, end at 65 because people retired. The average age of retirement was 65 back in the mid-1960s, and, and most men died before they were 65 or, or 70, in that 65 to 70 break. And the same thing with healthcare. We're living a lot longer now. We've got joint replacements, and they're fabulous, and so many other medical incredible things that are happening uh, to try to create, create and fix so many different problems. But they're not cheap. I mean, it is not free, and I think a lot of people seem to just think you can walk into the hospital and have a procedure done and you don't get a bill. Somebody has to pay that, and it's going to be the, the, the taxpayers. Other jurisdictions around the world, you know, we've studied Scandinavia, the U.K., and others. They seem to understand that, that, uh, that you don't necessarily want to throw money at this, and I don't think that's what you're asking for, doctor, but there's got to be proper funding for these sorts of services that people are demanding and expecting. No, absolutely. Like you said, these things aren't free. And, you know, as technology improves over time and as people age and live longer and want to take advantage of these innovations, there is a cost with that. And we need to understand what it is. Um, and we need our governments to commit to actually, you know, meeting the needs of Canadians by investing in the healthcare system. You know, I, I think it, it's quite clear. We know that publicly delivered healthcare uh, delivers the best standard of care to patients. I think we know that that's a value that Canadians hold as important to them as part of their national identity. Um, but, but that doesn't mean our system as it is right now is actually working. And I think we need to face that reality and actually take action towards putting the changes in place that are needed to make it something that will meet the needs of Canadians moving forward. And, and one of the best things and best ways to start that conversation is stop the finger pointing. Uh, you know, the feds pointing to the provinces, the provinces pointing to the feds. They understand that we, the public, uh, who are the ones who need this health care system, are demanding that these things have to be done and these revisions have to take place. Uh, they've got to sit around around the table and, and work on solutions instead of just blaming each other for the shortcomings. Oh, absolutely. I agree with you. You know, treating health care like a hot potato that you can just throw down the aisle is not helpful. We need people coming together and actually solving these problems and not just pushing it off uh, to the next government or the next election. You know, I think the time now is to have the courage to actually have these conversations and, and make the changes. You know, I think everyone's tired of, of just people talking. We really need action. Are you comfortable and are you confident that that discussion is going to take place with, with whatever government we're, we're left with after September 20th? Well, you know, at this point, I wouldn't say that I am because I, I don't think we've seen that in the past. Um, and that's, I think, why we're out advocating so strongly on this is, is we know it's what needs to happen. I really hope it is what what's happening. But I think all of us as citizens need to keep the pressure on our elected officials to let them know how important this is to us and that we're, we really want to see these solutions. You know, we, we're tired of people just talking. Um, and I think the, the people that can hold the government accountable is us as the citizens. And we need to keep that pressure on. Survey after survey, uh, what you know, what are the, the needs? What are, are the concerns of Canadians? Healthcare is always it's either one or one A on every one of those lists. And I know the environment and and the economy are there. Of course, they are because they have an impact on our lives certainly, and they have an impact on our health for that matter. But the same token, it's healthcare. It's the delivery of healthcare, and and I I find it frustrating that uh, that they're not paying the attention that I think it deserves, and especially in a situation like this. Uh, contrary to what some people think, elections are the time that we should be talking about policy changes and uh, i'd like to see more of that and hopefully doctor the the letter that uh, appears in the sun today uh, that you co-authored along with uh, tim guest is is going to be a catalyst for that conversation uh thank you for the the letter thank you for spending some time with us today i really appreciate it thanks so much have a great day you too dr Catherine smart who is the president of the canadian medical association you're listening to the bill kelly show podcast on 900 chml Heading into the last few days of the federal election campaign, and uh, we are inundated, of course, with the political promises, and, uh, you know, this is what we're going to do for you, this is how we're going to make your life better, et cetera, et cetera. Well, there's a segment of the Canadian population that's not getting a whole lot of attention right now, and uh, it's got to be frustrating for them, certainly, uh, but for so many others who are trying to offer support services. And we're talking about Canadians with disabilities. Uh, the, the discussion uh, during this federal campaign about uh, what 
policies are going to be in place and how they can be improved uh, for Canadians with disabilities is almost non-existent, and that should be changing. Uh, to talk about this, we're pleased to welcome to the program uh, David Lepofsky, who is the Chair Accessibility for Ontarians with Disabilities Alliance, and also an adjunct professor of law at the University of Toronto. David, a pleasure to have you on the program. Thank you so much for the time today. Great to be on your show. Let me ask you right up front, uh, the Canadians with disabilities make up about 22% of the Canadian population. Are politicians paying attention to that? Well, no, and, and making it worse, uh, we're actually the weirdest minority group of all. You see, everybody either has a disability now like me, I'm totally blind, or gets a disability later in life because that's what happens as you get older. So we are the minority of everyone. And you can't imagine how a politician can ignore the minority of everyone. But unfortunately, I won't say they're not giving us any attention. They're not giving us enough attention. You raise an interesting point. Uh, you know, you may think, well, yeah, I'm in relatively good shape, but that can change in a matter of moments. I mean, you know, people that uh, live a, a long life here, uh, you know, let's talk about people with, with joint replacements. Let's talk about a number of other things, which puts you in a totally different category. And then all of a sudden, you're part of that group, David, and you're saying, well, hey, wait a minute, where's the support? Where's, where's the help I need here? And it's, it's not there as much as it should be. And not only that, there, there, there's two areas where we're concerned. We're concerned about at least some of the political parties, more about that in a minute. But we're also concerned about a lot of the mainstream media. You are, uh, to your credit, an exception by putting this story on your show. Uh, some have, but many most haven't. So even though we've got wall-to-wall -wall election coverage with the pundits talking till you fall asleep, uh, about the elections issues, but good luck with our getting our issues, getting their attention. And it becomes a vicious cycle because if the media were talking about it more, the politicians would be talking about it more. Well, and we've made that point time and time again, but, you know, if you say, hey, how come they're not promising us this? Why aren't they doing this? Because you're not making enough noise. Uh, they respond to, to voters. They respond to public pressure. And, and that discussion has to be had. And it's amazing, David, uh, when we do talk about this, uh, how people are all of a sudden shocked that the subject's even up there. I had an issue a couple of years ago, uh, our listeners may recall, uh, a ski resort up in, in northern Ontario. And uh, we went up there and... Uh, huge huge parking lot only two disabled parking spots in this whole parking lot and I, I went to the i actually called the local council when i get back into town the next i said what's the deal and he says well that's the minimum that's what they've done i said well that's not good enough you know there are people that are disabled that like to ski too and i said you know I, I, don't they have a, an opportunity don't they have a right well uh, so you know and they, they just seem to know that's enough that's the minimum standard that's what we're going to do and that sadly seems to be the attitude a lot of people take What's really amazing in this election, um, I, I lead a, a grassroots cross-disability coalition and on August 3rd, knowing the election was in the wind, we wrote uh, all the major party leaders and said, here are 12 specific election commitments we want. For example, will you work on making sure that the voting process is accessible or you're spending billions on infrastructure projects Will you make sure that before you give somebody money for infrastructure projects, whether it's a local hospital or university building or whatever, that you'll require, you'll attach strings to make sure that the infrastructure you build is accessible? Well, of all the party leaders, the only one who's even answered our letter, much less made any commitments, um, is the NDP. Now, we're nonpartisan. We're not telling anybody who to vote for, who to vote against. Rather, we want all the party leaders uh, to make the commitments we're seeking. And in this case, let me just focus on the two front runners. Um, Justin Trudeau in his platform is promising that the, uh, the uh, Accessible Canada Act that they passed uh, three years ago, that they will follow a timely and ambitious implementation of it. Well, they promised that in the election two years ago uh, in writing to us, and they, they broke that promise. They've been dragging their feet. I'm not saying they're doing nothing, but they're going very slowly. Under that act, there are two major public officials who are supposed to oversee implementation of the law, a new accessibility commissioner and a new chief accessibility officer. Two and a quarter years after the law was passed, they're still recruiting. They haven't even hired the people who are going to be in charge. As for, uh, let's be even-handed here, for the other guy tied for the front running, um, um, Aaron uh, O'Toole, during debates over that legislation three years ago in the legis in Parliament, and this is all on our website, the, uh, the Conservatives uh, 
put forward several amendments to make that law stronger at our request and the request of others in the disability community, which is fantastic. And they said uh, one of the, uh, and Aaron O'Toole is one of the people quoting us and saying the law is too weak. And one of his colleagues, a, uh, one of the Tory MP, uh, MPs said, if you elect a conservative government, we will strengthen this law. I'm paraphrasing, but that's the substance of it. Well, three years later, they're running for office. We've asked them to make a commitment uh, in an email to a letter to uh, Aaron O'Toole. One of the things we said is, will you introduce the amendments that, that you tried putting forward three years ago, your party tried, and, and no answer. So the no answer from both Trudeau and O'Toole is really unacceptable. Now, we're not saying who to vote for. What we're saying is we want all the party leaders to make these pledges um, so that people with disabilities win no matter which party wins. David, is part of the problem that the politicians, or maybe for that matter, the public, don't understand the enormity of this. As you mentioned, uh, you know, we talked about 22% of the population, uh, but 65 to 75% was the stat I saw of people with disabilities have uh, what they call hidden disabilities. In other words, you can't look at them and say, oh, that's, uh, that's somebody who, uh, you know, has whatever the problem might be. There could be any number of things, uh, deafness, blindness, uh, physical disabilities, uh, any number of things, heart conditions. I mean, they're all under that broad umbrella right now, but a lot of people, if you walk past them in the mall or down the street, wouldn't be able to do that. And they don't understand that how many people are actually impacted by this. Well, let me give you an example. Our society is unfortunately designed and operated too often by governments and others as if people with disabilities are either not there or aren't participating or are an afterthought. So the federal government said in the last election and have repeated in this election, we will apply a disability lens to all our decision. That means we will look at each decision and make sure we take into account how it will affect people with disabilities. It's a great idea. It's wonderful. The problem is they came out with this new Arrive Can app. It's an app for your smartphone for when you're coming into Canada during this whole COVID thing. And you need to use it to be able to uh, to to come in, but that app is not designed to be accessible um, for blind people using a smartphone, an iPhone, or other smartphone. Apps can be designed to be accessible. I got an iPhone here. I use it all the time. I use accessible apps. But here's the federal government saying that we are going to uh, be ambitious in implementing accessibility. We are going to uh, put a disability lens on all our decisions, and look what we end up with. So it, that's just one little illustration that your listeners may not have thought about. They may not you know that people with, uh, who are blind use a smartphone and that there's ways to do it, but we do all the time. The app designer needs to get it right. The government that hires them needs to tell them they got to get it right. Obviously, that didn't happen here. Let's talk a little bit about support services. I mean, we've talked about uh, the tragic uh, circumstances of long-term care facilities, and that's another thing that was, uh, you know, exposed during the, this pandemic. Uh, but we're also through in that realm of talking about uh, care, and we're talking about home care in some cases, uh, physiotherapy, and a number of things like that. Those are support services that we tend to associate with, uh, with you know, people that may be, you know, living in long-term care facilities. But those are also services that people with disabilities need to access. Is is that ready for them? Is it is it available for them or, or is it problematic well, well, for them here's, to try an, to reach here's, out? An, here's an example and a lot of that stuff falls at the provincial sphere and yeah. responsibility has to be allocated and, and the in ontario uh, my coalition and i've been advocating on these issues for you know a long time uh and if people want to know more about this just go to aodaalliance.org aodaalliance.org they can see all the documents i'm talking about the promises that we've sought and all that stuff but um the ford government's record is uh on on promoting accessibility for people with disabilities is frankly um abysmal uh, again i'm not saying they're doing nothing they're doing nowhere near what they need to do um and they're going as slow as if they're going as slower they'd be going backwards um, and uh, for example, during uh, the when when the COVID pandemic hit, and if you recall, at the start it was uh, a challenge for some people to get uh, masks, pe you know, personal yeah. protective equipment. Well, one of the problems in Ontario that was reported is that people with disabilities who get home support services, people coming in, you know, uh, home care people who come into your home to. Uh, to take uh, uh, to help you get up in the morning and and get ready for your day and everything, they were not being provided uh, masks uh, by the government. They weren't being prioritized for it. 
So they literally each individual care worker was going to have to go on Amazon and try to buy masks themselves. Well, surprise, surprise, there's a real risk that if somebody goes into one facility, you know, one person's home and then the next person's home doing care during the day that they could be transmitting the uh, the disease from one person to the next. Some of the most vulnerable people were made even more vulnerable by poor government planning. Uh, and that is a recurring theme we've seen at the federal and provincial levels. I, I know that one of the things in reading some of the party platforms, I think it was the Green Party was talking about uh, fund, federally funded housing development. So they're all promising money for housing, by the way, uh, that they said there should be a commitment that 30% of all these units should be uh, not just affordable, but also available for people with disabilities. Uh, I think a lot of people, when they see that, they would think, well, that happens already, don't they? I'm sure, surely they, they make sure that, you know, that there's, there's going to be accessibility for, for new buildings, but it's not carved in stone. It's, it's, it's really kind of a, a patchwork of, of regulations uh, that I'm told don't get enforced very often. Well, I, what you think should be surely and obvious is absolutely not the case. Both the federal building code and in Ontario, the Ontario building code have accessibility provisions, but they're all out of date and inadequate. So you can build a building that fully complies with their accessibility requirements and still have a building with accessibility barriers. Why is that the case? Because at both levels, the government has failed us. What have we tried to do about it? We've written in our request of 12 commitments of the parties. Um, one of them is that the, uh, the next government should update the federal building code to make sure that it complies with the requirements of our human rights and charter of rights uh, legislation and that it provides for true accessibility. Now, again, Jack Mead Singh wrote us back, but Aaron O'Toole and, uh, and uh, Justin Trudeau have not made that commitment or even answered the request for it. That's frankly inexcusable. But on the issue of housing, this is an illustration. Our, as I understand it, our federal national building code exempts housing. So the accessibility requirements uh, don't fully apply to housing. We need requirements that new home construction using federal money have basic accessibility requirements built in. And even for a family that doesn't, living in a home that doesn't um, themselves need physical accessibility because at the moment they're okay. They're going to need it later as they get older because as they get older, they may not be able to walk up those steps in front of the house or whatever. We talk about making homes uh, adaptable so that you can, even if it's not fully accessible now, if you later need to put in grab bars in the bathroom <clears throat> or whatever, that, that, that it's, it's designed so you can do that. And we also want uh, our homes to also be visitable so that if we have friends with disabilities um, that uh, want to come over, that they, they can get in or relatives. Um, and those are requirements that are not um, sufficiently included in our national housing strategies. And they need to be. And that's what we're asking for. Um, and yet, like I said, the two front runners are saying not a word. And, and there's got to be, a, I, I guess, a, a, a much broader interpretation of this and, 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 and understanding the problem. Uh, it's one thing to say, okay, there's a ramp there for people that, uh, that may be a, a wheelchair-bound. It's okay, you can get in and out of the building. But I, I, you know, the, the follow-up question to that is, okay, once they're in the building, uh, are the, is there a, a accommodation made for, for those same people for workplaces and things of this nature? And sometimes the answer to that is, well, no, not, we haven't got there yet. And, and you're right. I mean, I, I, I've talk to people in government buildings and they, they drag their heels on this. Oh, we're going to do some renovations and we'll get around to doing that ramp and all that other stuff eventually. But uh, they don't understand the immediacy of this. I'm going to send you a link that you can post on your website after and your your, your listeners can go online to check this out. About uh, a, a few years ago, um, my coalition, we put out a video on YouTube. It's just, you can see one version is only 12, 12 minutes long. We picked uh, a building in downtown Toronto, um, uh, the Ryerson University Student Learning Center. Uh, a, a very pretty new building. It, it won awards and all this stuff, but it's replete with accessibility problems. And it's a brand new public building on a university campus right in the core of downtown Toronto. If you want to go to YouTube and just search on my name, Lepofsky, L-E-P-O-F-S-K-Y, and Ryerson, 
you'll see it. And you'll see it's been seen thousands of times. It's been all over the media. It's now being used in architecture training for some. Uh, but it's, it's and it's, we didn't pick Ryerson because they're the worst. We picked them because they were typical. What's stunning, spoiler alert, is that we make it clear at the end of this uh, video that the that building, replete with accessibility problems, won accessibility, or pardon me, won architecture awards. So we got a problem if a design profession is awarding a building that's replete with accessibility problems. Again, this requires both federal and provincial action, and we're seeing um, we're not seeing the action we need at either level. Is is there compliance? And uh, and for those who are egregious uh, offenders in situations like that, uh, are, are there penalties? Is is there a, a a a move to say this has to be fixed, or do they just kind of turn a blind eye to this? Well, it's uneven. I'm going to talk provincially now because that's where most of the action is. Yeah. But to the extent that the building code is implemented, it's, it's done by uh, local uh, building inspectors, and uh, we're not in a position to be able to monitor how consistently that's done. We have a provincial accessibility law, my coalition campaigns to get it implemented, called the Accessibility for Ontarians with Disabilities Act. We fought for a decade to win passage of that law. We've asked the provincial government to pass a built environment accessibility standard so that we can ensure that buildings in, excuse me, in Ontario are become physically accessible. And buildings are just one of the accessibility issues we have to deal with. And the, uh, the uh, so far, the Ford government has re- simply declined to do it. And when an opposition member, Joel Harden up in Ottawa, uh, brought a motion uh, calling for one to be uh, adopted, the Liberal, uh, pardon me, the Conservatives uh, the Doug Ford conservatives um, slammed the idea saying this is just a bunch of red tape. Our being able to get into a building is just red tape. Um, like, please. Um, and, and that's a problem. But also, even when there are limited protections enacted under the Accessibility for Ontarians with Disabilities Act in Ontario, the provincial government, both under this government and the previous government provincially, um, have done a paltry job enforcing it. So it's it's what you're talking about. So and so we need better regulations, but we also need the law enforced. Exactly, uh, David. Our time is tight. I'm hoping this is uh, at least the first of a number of conversations we can have about this, and hopefully somewhere down the road there'll be some discussion about some progress that's being made on this too. But that's not going to happen unless we do bring it to the to the front burner. And I hope we've done that today. Thank you so much for this, and we certainly will stay in touch with you. Thanks, and I'm always delighted to uh, to come back. You take care. Thank- you too. David Lepofsky, the chair of Accessibility for Ontarians with Disabilities. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.